You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. I'm just going to read the first two verses. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. I don't know if you know uh, Robert Burns' poem, uh, Scots Wahey. I was tempted to read the whole lot of it to you, but some of you might think that was political bias. Um, it's Burns's definition of uh, the speech that he imagines Robert the Bruce making at Bannockburn. Forget your Mel Gibson freedom. Read this one, and it's great. It's a great uh, song, poem. Scots were hey, we Wallace bled. Scots whom Bruce has often led. Welcome to your gory bed or to victory. And then the, the line I was thinking of: Now's the day, or news the day, and now's the hour. See approach, proud Edward's power, chains and slavery, and goes on to talk about being freed from that. It was a day coming. It was a day that was the time had arrived that people had been waiting for. Well, when we look at these verses, it's kind of what Paul is saying. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We've been looking at 2 Corinthians, and just to um, recap a little bit, uh, these verses that we have here are kind of a bridge between the first five chapters and the remainder of it. And for those of you who don't know the story, it's really Paul's story. Paul had been a man called Saul. He'd been a religious person, a good person, an upstanding citizen, well-connected, both a Jew and a Roman citizen, intelligent, and someone who hated Christianity and hated Christians. And then he became a Christian. And spent the rest of his life seeking to bring Christ to the people of Europe, really, uh, and beyond. From Israel to Spain, Paul did just an astonishing work. And one of the places that he brought the gospel was a a city port in Greece called Corinth, a godless place, a place full of religion, a place full of sexual immorality and greed. And he brought the gospel there, and a church was planted And everyone lived happily ever after, except they didn't. Because being a church, people fought amongst themselves. And people disagreed. And uh, particularly, they had a go against Paul. And as a result, he wrote them this letter, really defending his ministry. There were those who thought he was weak, those who wanted to um, take the teaching of Jesus and turn it into something else. And Paul writes this letter, which we call his second letter, but is probably his fourth. He writes this letter and to defend his ministry, but more importantly, 
to defend the gospel of God's grace and to urge the Corinthians not to turn back from it. And for me, one of the most astonishing things about this letter is how incredibly optimistic Paul is in the midst of all this trouble. He's optimistic whilst being realistic. And it's a, that's a pattern, a combination that we need. This letter is very applicable to us because we live in a godless generation. We too are often full of doubts and fears. And we have to struggle in the context of a church throughout the United Kingdom where false teaching abounds. So I'm going to look at this and I'm going to ask simply, first of all, what is God's grace? He says, I urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Now, the previous verses in in chapter 5, particularly the last verse, he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's grace. God's grace is that Jesus died for us so that we would not have to go to hell. God's grace is what it says in Isaiah 53, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. All over this world, there are people today who are seeking to worship God, and they are seeking to earn God's favor. One of the most ridiculous understandings of the Christian gospel, but you hear it said all the time. I heard John Humphreys on Radio 4 say... um, that if you're good, you'll get to heaven. That was the Christian gospel. That's the very antithesis of the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel says you can't be good. The Christian gospel says you can't make it to heaven. But the Christian gospel says God in his grace comes to us and he clears the way for us to go to heaven. Now I love the the phrase God's grace because it also refers to this idea, the day of God's favor. Now is the time of God's favor. Finding favor in the Bible is often linked with grace and with mercy. And it means gaining approval or acceptance or special benefits or blessings. In fact, the words are so linked, grace and mercy and favor, that sometimes for the same Hebrew word, they are translated for exactly the same word. And what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, in the midst of all the trouble that he's facing, he's saying, listen, today is the day of God's grace. Today is the day of God's favor. Today is the day to be accepted by God, to receive mercy and forgiveness from God. And I want you to have that phrase burned into your head. Particularly if you're a Christian and you're thinking, today is the day of judgment, today is the day of decline, today is the day of decay. In New Testament terms, today is the day of God's favor. I also want you to have that phrase if you're not a Christian. In case you're kind of thinking, well, one day I'd like to be a Christian. One day that would be a good thing. Well, today is the day of God's favor. Today is the day to be accepted by God, to receive the mercy of God and the forgiveness and grace of God. And I love the way when Paul does this, he does it so graciously. 
As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. He doesn't come and say, as the apostle, as the person who's in charge, you've got to do this. He doesn't come to the Corinthians and say, look, you guys have really backslidden, you've got it wrong, and uh, you know, I'm commanding you, you need to sort this out. He's saying, we're together, we're fellow workers together, and today is the day of God's favor. He's earlier said, we are Christ's ambassadors, beseeching you, pleading with you. And I think that is very, very important for us to realize that. It's not just the job of the preacher or, or the job of any Christian to present the facts of the gospel and then say, well, there you go, take it or leave it. I was up in uh, Bankery this week and uh, a lovely church there, Bankery Evangelical Church, uh, held uh, an outreach in one of these hotels that when you get the food, you know that it's going to be stale cheese sandwiches. And I couldn't believe it. I thought, this is going to be stale cheese sandwiches because of the decor. And it was. Uh, stale cheese sandwiches with Branson pickle. It was just gross. And cold sausage rolls. I mean, cold. But anyway, we w- went ahead and people drank and ate. And, and I um, spoke. A man stood up and gave his testimony. Uh, an engineer uh, in the oil industry who'd been an atheist. He'd been converted and he gave a wonderful testimony. And then afterwards, lots and lots of people were asking him questions, firing questions. And a young man gave me a lift home. Oh, not home. Gave me a lift to Stonehaven to get the train. And in the providence of God, it was wonderful. Because um, he said to me, we got in the car and he said, I want to ask you something. He said, I believe in God, but I, I don't get Jesus at all. And so for the half hour journey that we had to Stonehaven, uh, I was telling him about Jesus. And I could see that he was getting it and he was getting it. And he was understanding. And then I got out of the car, and in myself I thought, you know, I want to pray with you. But we don't do that in Presbyterian circles, you know. And I thought, and I got, and I stood on the platform, and I thought, you idiot. Of course you should have prayed with him. It's not manipulating people to pray with him. So I, I wrote him actually and apologized. Said, you know, that um, it's not just enough to hear about. We've got to encourage people. We've got to so believe it ourselves that we are beseeching people and pleading with people to receive God's grace. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the reason that you are here is that today is the day of God's favor and you are to receive God's grace. Now, one of the difficulties is that it's possible to receive God's grace in vain. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. How can that be done? Well, there are three different ways, I think, that Paul mentions in this letter. One is to criticize, actually, the gospel. Later on, he says this, in chapter 11, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. What's one of the biggest dangers facing the Christian church today? It's the fact that there are evangelical churches who will put up with people who teach a different Jesus. 
Now, there are many, many examples of that, but I'm, I'll mention one just now. And it, I think it's my responsibility to warn people. I received three emails from people this week saying, but wait a minute, how can you, how can you say this? Surely it's just a different way of looking at the same Jesus. And I'm talking about Steve Chalk, who's a, a leading evangelical in this country. And a Christian magazine has just published an article by him in which he says that it's incredibly misleading to say that the Bible is the word of God. That Jesus is the word of God, not the Bible. It's incredibly misleading to say the Bible is without error. It's incredibly misleading to say that, for example, the story of Ananias and Sapphira is actually true. Now, I am used to getting this kind of thing from liberals or people. And when we say liberals, if you're not used to coming to church, we don't mean open-minded and generous people. We mean people who take the Bible and go, no, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. And they just pick and mix whatever they want. But for evangelicals, people who say, we follow Jesus. And for me, almost the worst thing is the number of Christians who go, yeah, well, we don't agree with that, but it's just a different way of looking at it. No, it's not. What Paul says here is absolutely the same. If someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, a Jesus who, who wouldn't send anyone to hell, a Jesus whose God was not the father of the Old Testament, it's not Jesus. It's a different Jesus. That pro- this problem is not new. This problem existed in Corinth. And Paul says, I am, I am concerned that you are going to receive God's grace in vain. In other words, you're going to hear the story about the cross. You're going to hear the story about Jesus. And then, because of this false teaching, you're going to turn away from it. It's a different gospel. And that's why, even though it's horrible to be involved in contention, even though it just doesn't sound quite right to to criticize someone or whatever, that's why we do it. Because we don't have a right to make up our own personal Jesus. I don't want anyone to believe what I believe because I believe it. I hope that God will take away every single word of mine that is just mine. I want to know about Jesus. And there is this mass confusion being sown in the Christian church today. And Christians are being blown here and there by every wind of doctrine because they just don't stick with the Jesus of the Bible. And if you don't stick with the Jesus of the Bible, you're going to keep following lots and lots of different ones, making up your own personal one. We can receive it in vain in that way, moving away from the gospel. We can receive it in vain in another way, when we receive it without gratitude. In Greek, the same word expresses both grace and gratitude. In in, in Christianity, theology is grace, grace and ethics is gratitude. There's so many verses on this, but this one will do. Colossians 2. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. There are some of us who will, who will, you will agree with what I've said about the doctrine. Yes, that's very important. And we don't want unsound theology. And you're right to warn us about that. But here is an equal warning. You can be sound in your theology and you can be ungrateful. We very quickly become ungrateful. That's why we have the Lord's Supper to help us to remember. We're having that this evening. That's why we we receive it with gratitude. That's why on a day like today when it's Mother's Day, it's an opportunity to express gratitude. The communion is like that. It's a Eucharist, a thanksgiving 
Some Jewish teachers believed that when the Messiah came, all the sacrifices in the temple would cease except the thanksgiving. And they were right. They have all ceased except the thanksgiving, the Eucharist. It's possible to receive the gospel and not to receive it with gratitude. And I think particularly for some of us, what happens is we hear the gospel, we become Christians, we're doing really, really well, we carry on with our lives, things begin to wear us down, we begin to tire out, we lose sight of God, we lose sight of his word, we, we ignore the means of grace, we become quite cynical, quite cold, quite hard, quite bitter. So in our heads, we've got the doctrine of the gospel, but we're not full of gratitude. For example, we sang the song, Oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. And maybe for some of you, you're thinking of black gospel choir singing, Oh, happy day. But do you honestly feel that within yourself? As you sang those words, were you conscious and full of gratitude that Jesus has taken all your sins, all the dirt, all the filth, that he's taken all your diseases and all the pain, And he's done that. And what's your first word in prayer? Oh Lord, I want to complain about this. I want to complain about that. I want to complain about this. But that's not what we have to be. We have to be a people who are full of gratitude. Maybe there's another way that we can receive it wrongly as well. Criticisms of the one who's bringing it. And I think that's particularly what Paul is referring to here. There were those who were very critical of Paul. His style, his manner, maybe his clothes, maybe his nose. Who knows? They were were just going for him with everything. They were saying, yes, we believe in Jesus. Yes, we believe the Bible. But that preacher, boy, what a pain he is. And I think in there, there's a kind of personal problems. A lack of humility, a lack of love, a lack of forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. One of the things that cripples Christians, it's not just false doctrine, it's not just a lack of gratitude, but one of the things that cripples us is just this censorious, critical spirit all the time. Well, you say, you hypocrite, you've just done that. You've just criticized another Christian for teaching false doctrine. Can you understand the confusion that's caused by statements like that and, and not understanding When someone takes away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, when someone brings another Jesus than the Jesus of the scriptures, they have to be absolutely hammered. But you don't criticize somebody because you don't like their style, you don't like their personality, you don't like the way that they dress. You don't like the fact that they hurt you, they said something or did something that just doesn't fit with you, or they they did something that was wrong, because they're sinners. Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. Sometimes our personal pride, likes and dislikes, get in the way of our receiving God's grace. So it's possible for you to be in a good, Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church where God's grace is being poured out through his word, and you're receiving it in vain. So the plea is not just to those of you who are not Christians. The plea is to those of you who are hard-hearted Christians. Those of us who are ungrateful Christians. Those of us who are always looking to find some way to complain. No. Paul says that's receiving God's grace in vain. 
Let me ask, how do we receive it today, though? He says, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. It's a... Fergus MacDonald of the Scottish Bible Society, Free Church Minister, he always loves talking about this, the kairos moment, the right moment, the right time, the acceptable time. What does that mean? I don't know if any of you saw this week. Just go on YouTube or Google it, or I think it was on the Daily Telegraph website. See how posh I am. Radio 4, the Daily Telegraph. You can't accuse me of socialism anymore. No. <laughs> but it's, there's a wonderful... I found it on the Daily Telegraph website anyway. This woman from South Shields, who's deaf and blind. And they've given her implants into her ears. And they just started switching them on. And there's this day when she hears for the first time, and the nurse is reading out the days of the week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and you just hear this crying and crying. The woman starts crying, because the first time she's heard, she's got it, she's heard. And then she, I think it reads out months or something, and she can't stop crying, because today is the day that her ears got switched on. It was really quite extraordinary. And it's wonderful to see that. And I think that what, that's a kind of good illustration of what's being spoken on here. God is saying, now is the time for you to hear. Jesus goes, if you've got ears, listen. Now is the time for you to grasp. Now is the time for you to understand. There's a gravity in this appeal because there's a time limit to it. Some people might say, well, what about tomorrow? But there isn't. This isn't about tomorrow. If you go back earlier in the chapter, chapter 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That is tomorrow. That's what's guaranteed tomorrow. Tomorrow is judgment day. Today is the day of salvation. There's the parable of the rich farmer that Jesus told who, who said, I will go and I will build bigger barns and I will store things up and then I will say, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this day your soul is required of you. And there are people, and this is crazy, but there are people who say, well, wait till I get my exams done. Wait till I get my first child. Wait till I get married. Wait till I get over this. Wait till I enjoy this bit of my life. Then I'll think about becoming a Christian. And God says, no, no, today. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Today is the day of salvation. I love the way that Calvin deals with this. He says, here we have a very beautiful passage and affording no ordinary consolation because while the gospel is preached to us, we know assuredly that the way is open for us into the kingdom of God. Isn't that great? The, the way to the kingdom of God is not closed on you because right now, how do you know that? Because right now you're hearing the gospel. It's not closed. Calvin goes on. And that there is a signal of divine benevolence raised aloft to invite us to receive salvation. For the opportunity of obtaining it must be judged by the call. So what he's saying is God is not yelling us with a whip or whatever. He's holding up his divine benevolence. He's holding up his goodness and he's saying, come, come. Today is the day of salvation. Today is not the day of wrath. Today is not the day of anger. Today is not the day of judgment. Today is the day of salvation. But Calvin goes on. Unless, however, we embrace the opportunity, we must fear the threatening that Paul brings forward, that in a short time the door will be shut against all that have not entered in while opportunity was afforded. For this retribution always 
follows contempt of the word. That's why it's always so fearful when people hear the word of God and go away saying, nah, another day. Look where these words come from. This is from Isaiah 49. I just want to read this passage to you because I think it was wonderful. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. In the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritance. To say to the captives, come out. And to those in darkness, be free. It's a great gospel passage. Come out, come out, come out of the darkness and be free. Do you ever, you know, if you understand this, you understand why Paul was optimistic. Come out, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, O heavens, rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted one. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Oops. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Your walls are ever before me. Your sons hasten back, and those who laid you waste depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your sons gather and come to you. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them all as ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. Though you were ruined and made desolate on your land laid waste, now you will be too small for your people, and those who devoured you will be far away. The children born during your bereavement will yet say in your hearing, this place is too small for us. Give us more space to live in. Then you will say in your heart, who bore me these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these up? I was left all alone. But these, where have they come from? You think about the Christian church today. It is weak. Some people say we have no children. Well, we've got quite a lot of children, actually. <laughs> and there goes another one. <laughs> but people do say that. They say, we have no children. Where did they come from? Actually, in a literal sense, uh, some of you will know this, we had a prestatory report about uh, 12 years ago in which Neil McMillan lamented the lack of children and uh, suggested we have family services and we had a big argument and so on. I always like to say this, that from the day of the presbytery quinquennial visitation, we've never had a time in the church when someone hasn't been pregnant. The power of presbytery is astonishing. Um, but God has blessed us. You go into the creche, you say, where did, where did all these children keep, come from? I think that there's a kind of analogy in there in terms of People coming to know Jesus Christ. You could go around the evangelical churches in Dundee today and you could ask how many people have become Christians here within the past two or three years? How many people have come from the housing estates? How many people have come from the ferry? How many people have come from Charleston and Kirkton to actual faith in Jesus Christ? Not many. Not many. Maybe a handful. And the churches are not saying, where, where, where do we have the room to put all these people? The churches are saying, we're small, we're small, we're small, we're dying. And the Lord says, ah, but today is the day of salvation. Which is why I love what Elam are doing, because Elam are a relatively small church, 60, 70 people. 
And uh, they've gone down to Technology Park, and Gareth there is, I was in yesterday, and Hugh was in, we, we saw it on Friday. Um, 200 plus chairs they bought, and space for another 200 more. And I thought, good for you. Good for you to think like that. Today is the day of salvation. That's what we look for. Andy Burns and the Street Pastors Outreach, going into deja vus and fat sams with people, as Andy described them to me, as so lost and lonely, going to the gay club in the Seagate. And what does he see? He sees the fields are white for harvest. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. And that surely is what Paul says as well. He says we are God's fellow workers. Way too many of us are spectators. Again, I know people who are good in their theology at one level. They think they are. They're, they're sound. They're reformed. They're, they're, they're biblical. And they, they're waiting for God to bring revival. They say, well, well, God will bring revival. God will bring revival. And then everything will be great. But Paul pleads to the Corinthians, you're God's fellow workers. This is work. Way too many of us are spectators. We lack gratitude. We sit on the sidelines and watch. Imagine a child, young person, goes home and it's Mother's Day. And they say, thanks, Mom, here's a card. And then their mom cooks the dinner and their mom does the dishes and their mom hoovers the floor and they expect their mom to make their sandwiches for tomorrow and they just sit there, they can't be bothered. It's not gratitude. You find that the workers tend to be the grateful ones and the grateful ones tend to be the workers. Jesus told the story of the wedding feast and how those who were invited refused to come and so invites were sent out to the highways and byways, as it says, basically sent to places where people would not expect to be invited. I'm not sure that this is absolutely correct, but I want to offer this to you as a thought for at least for you to think about. I think it's probably time for us to give up on the religious people. Stop trying to rescue churches. People have been invited and heard the gospel many, many, many times. Is it not time for us to do what Andy Burns is doing, to go into the clubs and to go into the housing estates and to go to the places where people have never heard about Jesus? Does it not bother you that there are housing estates in Dundee with 7,000 people in them that have nobody, no church, nobody telling them the gospel. And they're not going to hear it in schools. The clubs and the shops and the workplaces and the homes and the streets. Maybe God is telling us today is the day of salvation. Stop trying to create the church in our own image. Maybe we just have to go and tell people the good news and be amazed at what God does. Where do they come from? Where have these people come from? I believe that God can do that. I don't believe that any strategy we have or any program we have will do that. But I believe that God's spirit can and I believe that God's word can. Because the, and, we, and that's why we hold on to that word. But for those who hold to the word and then say, well, we're just keeping the word and not communicating it, there's something wrong. And for those who seek to communicate Jesus but turn away from the word, there's also something desperately wrong. There's one question that I have to answer before we finish. How do we receive God's favor? 
It's not that we start, this is the day I start to serve God. This is the day I earn my salvation. This is the day I'm going to be good. This is the day I receive God's grace. Well, I'll read from Romans 10. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. My friend in the car last week, the person who writes me, the person I'm sitting beside, you, sitting here, thinking, What do I have to do to receive God's grace? What experience do I have to get? It really is this simple. You confess that Jesus is Lord. You believe that God raised him from the dead. You call on the name of the Lord. And you are saved. How does it work? I do not know. There's no formula. There's no checkbook of things that you, you do. All I know is that God never turns away anyone who comes to him. And you see, that's the brilliance of the gospel. That's why we can go to Kirkton and Charleston and the ferry and your next door neighbors and others. And to people who've never heard anything, tell them about Jesus and say, look, you don't have to pass this exam. You don't have to pass this test. But you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and you're willing to confess that Jesus is Lord, you call upon him, you will be saved. It really is quite an amazing message. And I want to encourage those of you who are not Christians to think about what that means, but not just to think, to act on it. I'm going to pray in a moment, and, you know, just as, as, as I pray, make these words your own. But for those of us who are Christians... We need to take on board today is the day of salvation because I think we think yesterday was the day of salvation. Remember the Lewis revival. Remember the revivals in the Reformation in the first century or whatever if you know your history. And I think there are some who think tomorrow is the day of salvation. Oh, when God comes in power, when this will happen. I keep hearing this all the time. Well, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. But we don't know about tomorrow. And we're not even sure about yesterday. But I know that today is the day of salvation. And that's a great day. The greatest day in history. For you, that could be today. And for the people around, that could be today. Jesus said an amazing thing. He said to his disciples, the works that I have done, you will do also, but you will do greater works. Now, feeding 5,000, walking on water, raising the dead. Who's going to beat that? We are when we communicate the good news of Jesus Christ, people hear that and they are spiritually raised. They are born again by God's Holy Spirit. That's what we need absolutely more than anything else in this city, in our communities. 
May God grant that it happens. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.